Please remain standing, and for the reading of God's Word, we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 6. The sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians. I'm going to read verses 10 through 20. We're going to remain in Ephesians 6, this passage, for a little uh, bit of time. Uh, Next week, we're going to turn to Romans 6 for consideration of the resurrection, and we'll return to Ephesians 6. This morning, we're going to be considering verse 14, but we're going to read verses 10 through 20. This is the word of our Lord. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith which with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray that your spirit would mightily use this passage to speak to us today. For us in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. In his writings, Paul often uses military imagery to illustrate the Christian life. For example, in Philippians 2 and in 2 Timothy 3, he describes his fellow servants in Christ as soldiers. In uh, 2 Timothy, he says that the attitude of a Christian is one of a soldier who is engaged in warfare to the point that he doesn't even think about the trivial things of life. In, in 1 Timothy 6, he says that life is a, the good fight of faith as in the essence of a military engagement. So here we have Paul often use the imagery of the military, of soldier, of war to illustrate the life of a Christian. Our passage this morning includes the longest analogy of the Christian life as war and the passage that we are so familiar with in the whole armor of God. And perhaps Paul got the idea of this analogy, the idea for this analogy, by looking at the Roman soldier who was uh, attached to him 24 hours a day, seven days a week, as he's in house arrest in Rome. Remember, Paul is writing from prison. And the way that they conducted prison at this time was to have a soldier literally in chains with you, attached to you, every moment of the day. And Paul says, oh, look, he has the armor on. And oh, I can use that to illustrate some points to the church in Ephesus. Today, I want to consider just one verse of this passage. as verse 14. It talks about the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. And I want us to consider that in order to stand, 
while under attack from Satan. Remember, the book of Ephesians is moving to this place. Paul, everything Paul has said to us so far in this book is to get to verse 10 so that we might be made strong in the Lord and stand the attacks of Satan. And if we want to stand the attacks of Satan, we must be characterized by truth and righteousness. Uh, that has to be how we're known. We're known by being people of truth and people of righteousness. So the whole purpose of this book is to help us stand, to obey this command that Paul gives us to stand. Paul repeats himself often in this passage, four times to be precise, to tell us that we are to stand. In verse 11, in verse 13, in verse 14, he commands us to stand. And remember, this is first century. He's not uh, keyboarding it. He's not uh, just typing it into a computer. He's not dictating to voice to text. He actually writing on papyrus, which was a paper made of uh, a river reed pressed together, super rough and expensive, with a quill probably made of a stick of wood dipped on octopus ink and trying to write that way. Expensive and cumbersome. And if you're going to repeat yourself, then it tells us that there's something very important that Paul is telling us. And the, the way he's telling us is that we're to stand, to stand against the attacks of Satan. And there's two, two aspects of standing. And throughout this lesson, you're going to find a lot of two, two aspects. There's two aspects uh, around this idea of standing. One is that Paul is telling us to stand as opposed to falling. Don't fall when Satan attacks you. Putting on the whole armor of God is, is a means by which we stand. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So Paul says stand. Stand by putting on the whole armor of God that you might withstand the wiles of the devil and not fall from where you are. The second aspect, the second way to think about standing is that the Christian is to stand before the attacks of Satan in the sense that he is not to move back. In chapter 1, Paul, verses 20-23, Paul tells us that the Father, by His resurrection and ascension, the Father gave all things to Jesus Christ. What's in heaven on earth, spiritual and physical, visible and invisible, is given to, to the Son, put under His feet, and then the Father gave the Son to the church. Everything belongs to Christ, and we're to stand in that we're not to give back not even an inch to Satan of what Christ has conquered. We're to stand firm and not be moved back and to defeat, to, to be instruments of Christ in this war against Satan as we do that. Now, do you notice that there are six parts to this armor? There is the belt of truth, the blessed breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. And have you ever wondered why they are listed in this order? Those are the kinds of things I think about when I read the Bible. Why is it listed in this order instead of uh, a different order? Well, it's not the order of importance, but it's the order in which a Roman soldier would have put the equipment on. It would have to be put in this way in order to fit all together. And that's why Paul lists in this way. And you notice that all the parts are to be on the Christian at all times. Because we are always at war. Now we might think, okay, for this battle I'm going to put the helmet. For that battle I'm going to put the shoes on. Paul says, no, you need to have the entire armor all the time on. Because the war demands that. If you're going to, going to stand, all that has to be 
present. And sometimes we look at this idea of armor and we think that Paul's talking about something extraordinary, something special. And, but that's not what it is. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about things that are common to everyday Christians. They're talking about things that every Christian should have in his life. Forget about the analogy of an armor for a, for a moment and just think about what is it that Paul wants us to put on as we engage in this spiritual war against very powerful enemies. He wants us to put on truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, and the word of God. Are these extraordinary, special things, or are they just the things that make a Christian? And when we extricate these, these items from the analogy, we see that they are not extraordinary things for special times. These items are of the essence of what it means to be a Christian. You remove one, and you don't have biblical Christianity and a biblical Christian anymore. Think about it. What, what will happen to us as Christians if we let go of truth? We're, we're no longer followers of Christ. Faith. If you let faith go, we're no longer followers of Christ. If you let salvation... So you can see here that Paul's not talking about, hey, I want you to be super strong, special forces. You need to be part of the SEAL, uh, no, Bravo team in order to be able to fight. No, he says, with the things I've given you of everyday Christianity, put them on and go fight Satan. Do you also notice that there's no protection for the back and the armor? Now, when we think of armor, we tend to think of medieval armor. Uh, armory where we have the metal all the way from the top to the bottom. Uh, last week we watched the book. Uh, not we watched the book. That's what we do. Uh, we <laughs> we watched the movie uh, about Henry V. You know, although you know, as we watch, you know, uh, Grace and Tina were fat checking according to Mr. Bond's uh, uh, classes from from Covenant High School. But they one, the reason one of the reasons why the British won the English won the war uh, the Battle of Agincourt was because they shed their armor. And the French fought in full armor, and they were covered all the way around, and the field was muddy, so they were sinking. And by the, time that, by the time they got to the battle, they couldn't even raise their arms, so tired they were. That's not the type of armor that Paul is talking about here. This armor has no protection for the back. And the Roman, the Roman army knew, did, did that on purpose, right? Because if you're a soldier, and you have no protection to your back, guess what you're not going to do? You're not going to turn your back and run, right? Because now you are uh, susceptible to the attacks of the enemy. So, but it also tells us that this war on Satan is to be a frontal attack. We're, we're not going to be sneaky. He's sneaky, but we're not. We're going to face him with the, the tools and the weapons that Christ has given us. And to turn our back on him is to be unprotected. I also want you to notice that this armor is designed for close battle, con- uh, close quarter contact. Uh, this armor was designed for close quarter combat. How do I know that? Do you notice what the only? Of- do you see what the only offensive weapon is? Is a sword, and this is a description of the short Roman double-edged sword. The- they, they, they could only reach so far. One of the things that's absent in this discussion is the spear that every Roman soldier also used. It was designed to keep the enemy farther away from you. When the spear is gone, it means that you're fighting really close to the enemy because you're only using your shield and poking at the enemy you know, to try to destroy the enemy. And that's the picture. There's, there's, this is the, the close-quarter war with Satan. Satan's not at a distance. He's not coming tomorrow. He is fighting with you right now. 
and you are to be at war and engaging him in war. Now, and notice that all the parts of the armor are joined to, to and by prayer. In verse 18, Paul says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And this makes a lot of sense since we are fighting a war that we really can't fight on our own. On our own, we're going to lose it. Prayer allows us constantly to draw on God's grace and strength in order to stand, as the commentator said, with an immovable steadfastness in the face of a ruthless foe. So with all these things, we add prayer to it. And that's how we fight. And we do that by putting on the truth, the belt of truth. Truth makes us ready to fight. Look at verse 14 again. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. The function of the belt in the Roman uh, war outfit was to keep the soldier's tunic out of the way to keep the breastplate in place, and to keep the scabbard so that the the sword could be easily accessed in, in, in battle. In other words, the belt kept things in place and out of the way so that the soldier would be ready to fight. That's what the expression, girding your waist in the beginning of verse 14 means, readiness. Make yourself ready to fight by putting on truth. Peter uses the expression in a similar way to encourage the Christian to be ready to do work. In 1 Peter 1.13, Peter says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your minds. I don't know why, but that's a, uh, every time I read that verse, Carol's voice comes into my mind. I don't, I don't know if she repeated that to his, her kids. That's something that your mom would say all the time or something like that. Yeah. So, but that's, that's the idea of getting ready to work. Get your mind ready to work, to fight Satan. This is similar to what Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 6. And that's what we do. We gird ourselves to the truth of God that we might be ready to fight Satan. Without truth, we are going to lose the war. We're going to lose it. So we need to be prepared to fight by girding ourselves with truth When the New Testament writers use expressions that include the word with as in girded your waist with truth or the word of as in the breastplate of righteousness, we need to figure out if the author meant it objectively. That is something that's true whether you existed or not or if they meant it subjectively. That is, it's part of your experience. To understand that, you need to experience to experience it, or to both. And I think both in regard to truth and righteousness in our verse today, we should understand the two aspects to be present. We put on truth, we are to put on truth as specific aspects of God's revelation in the Bible. We are to put on truth by learning the Bible, by learning Christian doctrine, by memorizing the scriptures, and we are to put on truthfulness of sincerity of heart. We are to act and speak and believe truthfully as we go on about life. So we cannot stand before the attacks of Satan if we're not prepared, if we have not prepared ourselves, if we're not girded our loins with the truth that is contained in the Bible. Jesus prays for us and says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And sometimes I feel like I'm a broken record. And that's an expression that uh, uh, a lot of people don't understand anymore because vinyl records are not a thing anymore. Uh, 
But growing up, we had to play music from these things that were like this big, and they were black, and they had grooves on them, and you had to have a needle that played it. Well, I'm not as old as the one that you had to go like this to turn on, but... Uh, uh, and if there was a scratch on that vinyl, that round thing, what would happen? It would jump back. The needle jumped back and repeat what had just happened. And so when we were little, we had storybooks like Fables of Aesop or Red, Little Red Riding Hood in these vinyls. And they would be so scratched for, from use that it would be like, and Little Red and Riding Hood went to Grandma's house. And Little Red Riding Hood went to Grandma's house and you had to flick, well... We're not supposed to flick, but we'd flick the needle so that it would jump to the next uh, spot. So that's how I feel, like a broken record or a scratched record saying, if you want to fight Satan, if you want to live like a Christian, you need to make the Bible your own. That's primarily what putting the belt of truth means. And we need to, so I, need, I keep on saying, read the Bible, listen to sermons, especially on the Lord's Day. But, but girding ourselves with truth is what is going to equip us to stand and withstand the attacks of the evil, the, the devil and his, and his angels. Paul says in Second uh, Timothy 3.16, he says, All scripture is given by inspiration. All scripture is God-breathed. It is God-speaking. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. In verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped... For every good work. That good work includes fighting Satan. And it's the word of God that thoroughly equips us to do that. And that's why then in chapter 4 verse 2. Paul tells Timothy. Preach the word. Only two times in your life you're supposed to preach the word Timothy. In season and out of season. When people wanted to hear you preach. And when people don't want to hear what you have to tell them. Those are the only two times you're supposed to proclaim this word that equips us to withstand the attacks of the, the devil. Together on the Lord's Day as a, the army of God. That's who we are here. We're the army of God together. We hear our marching orders from the mouth of the minister so that we can withstand the attacks of the devil. Not just listen to podcasts or sermons of life, but together here as the battalion that's going to go out to war this week, we hear the marching orders from, orders from the word of God as we go out into the world today. Now, to gird, to gird ourselves, to prepare ourselves, implies even more than reading and listening to the Word of God. It includes thoughtful meditation and appropriation of the, of the very words of God. The, the blessed man, the righteous man in Psalm 1 verse 2 is described as, as this. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. The righteous man, the blessed man, doesn't stand in the path of sinners because he stands on the word of God on which he meditates day and night. Uh, I was listening to a podcast by a lady by the name of um, Jenny Ortland, And she was talking about being married to a pastor and the difficulties of being married to a pastor and so on. And then she said this, and that made a lot of sense. If you're able to worry, you're able to meditate. Because what are you doing when you're worrying? You're thinking about the thing over and over and over again, right? So if you're able to worry, you're able to meditate on the Word of God. And in order to gird ourselves, we need to meditate upon the Word of God. The Psalm 119, verse 97 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. We gird ourselves with truth because we love it. God is truth and we are in Him. Psalm 119, verse 11 says, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
we make God's universe and absolute truths ours. That's what it means to gird ourselves. We embrace the objective truth of God, and we are truthful in our subjective expressions. James Boyce, in his commentary on Ephesians, he says, We must be truthful men and women, of course, but we will become that only as we feast on the revealed truths of God. I love that expression, feast on the revealed truths of God. Gorge ourselves on the Bible. That's the only place where gluttony is allowed, is when we are gorging ourselves in the Word of God. So we speak what is true, and we do that in love, desiring that we all will grow into the fullness of Christ. We speak the truth when truth is not popular. We winsomely, respectfully, and forcefully articulate what God says concerning issues in our society. We do not choose to stay quiet when our woke world decides that we should not speak. Remember? Timothy, preach in season and out of season. Preach, proclaim the word of God when people want to hear the message and when people don't want to hear the message. Brothers, sisters, we are truly in a truth crisis. We're truly in a truth crisis. For centuries, the locus of truth, that is the place that determined truth, the determining factor of truth, if, if something was true or not, was the existence of God. God is, therefore I am. God is, therefore everything else is. In the 17th century, René Descartes comes along and declares that the locus of reality, the place of reality, the place where things is determined is man. His famous statement that we know as, I think, therefore I am, or more precisely, I doubt, therefore I am, became the deciding factor of what's truth. God is removed, and who now decides what true is? Man. He was eventually followed by, in the late, the late 19th and early 20th century by the modernists who said that truth is only determined by the scientific method. You follow the scientific method so that you can find truth. You, you, whatever cannot be determined by the scientific method cannot be true. Then postmodernism came along with midway through the 20th century and told us that there isn't absolute truth. Each society has its own truth that should be respected and valued. That's not where we are anymore. Sadly, we're in a place where postmodernism was better than what we have now. Today, truth is determined by humanity's most basic and sin-tainted sexual desires. That's what determines what is true. Critical theories of gender identity have determined what is true in our society today. Whoever yells the loudest owns the truth, and no dissenting opinion is allowed anymore. Brothers and sisters, we truly live in a culture where the emperor has no clothes and the greatest sin, the greatest crime is to say so. If you say so, you'll be canceled, eliminated, forgotten from culture. So brethren, if we are going to stand the wiles of the devil, we cannot sit quietly practicing a false piety that doesn't say anything to a dying world that is moving closer and closer to the brink of hell. The only hope this deluded and woke world has is the truth of the word of God, and we, the church, are the pillar and ground of it. What are you going to do with it? 
Our children and grandchildren cannot afford our silence. As a matter of fact, we cannot afford our own silence. Yet, gloriously, Christ remains victorious, and we are more than conquerors through him. So stand the wiles of Satan by girding yourself with truth. We must say what God says concerning the most pressing issues of our loving, of our time. We say it lovingly, but we say it without compromise. We must fight the battles where the battles are being fought. There's all kinds of hills in our cultural battle. But we're only being faithful to the Lord if we're fighting the battle in which, in, in which hill the battle is being fought. If you're fighting a battle over here that nobody else is fighting, we're not being faithful, we're not girding our minds with truth. In order to fight Satan, we fight where the front is. We must say that marriage is a union between one man and one woman, and that any other sexual union is heinous, a heinous sin against God and deserving eternal judgment. We must say that gender or sex is determined genetically at conception, and that the idea that there is more than female and male based on biology is something that destroys being human. This is part of the essence of being human. Take that away. We are sub-humans. So we put on the belt of truth. But alongside the belt of truth, we put on the breastplate of righteousness. Look at verse 14 again. And therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of, plate of righteousness. The commentator says, The Christian's protection is not to be sought in any works of his own, but only in what Christ has done for him and in him. And as with truth, righteousness has two aspects. We put on the righteousness that Christ has earned for us in life and in death. And because we have that on us, then we live righteously, that is, we live holy lives. So, brothers, we stand the attacks of the devil by trusting that our standing before God has nothing to do with anything good in us. Only with the work and person of Jesus counted as ours solely by faith in him. Horatius Bonar says, Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Your blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Your love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to you, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. First and foremost, in our war against Satan, we need to know who we are in Christ. That's where, that's where the identity battle is. Satan will bring up all the wrong things we have done to discourage us. Or he will bring up all the kinds of good things we've done to incite pride and to make us lose focus. We go to war with the cross squarely in front of us. That's the only way to fight Satan, is with the cross of Christ squarely in front of us. Again, Bonar says, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toy flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Your grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Your power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. No other work save yours. No other blood will do. No strength save that which is divine can bear me safely through. So what has Christ done for his people? He actively 
from his birth to his death, obeyed every jot and every tittle of the law of God. Christ perfectly obeyed every little nuance of the law of God because you and I cannot obey it. We just can't. He also passively endured the punishment for the sins of his people on the cross. And that's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.21, For he, the Father, made him Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If you believe that Jesus did that for you, then you stand as Jesus does before the Father. Perfect and loved. That's exactly how you stand before the Father. There's no accusation that Satan can bring against you that will stick. Let me give you a, a biblical illustration. You can turn there if you want to, but you probably won't find it in time. Je- Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah is one of those books that is difficult to find. It's towards the end of the Old Testament. We have this scene as if, uh, as, as if God gives us a, a, peak, a peak in the intersection of the physical and the spiritual. In Zechariah 3, starting in verse 1, we read, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Talking about Joshua. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by him. The picture is, here he's saying, to say, look at Joshua. He's so dirty. How can he be the high priest? How can he serve you? Look at him. And, and the angel of the Lord, which is a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, says, don't worry. I will give, I will cleanse him. I will give him the robes that make him worthy of being my high priest. And that's exactly what Christ does for you when you come to faith in him. This positional righteousness, that is, the righteousness that is ours for being in Christ, that's what the position is in Christ, will always translate in practical righteousness, that is, holy living. God gave Joshua clean clothes, but also told him to live righteously. In verse 6 and 7 says, Now that you've been cleansed, go and live a pure life. Brothers and sisters, our hearts are protected by the righteousness of Christ that shows itself in obedient lives. We stand by obeying the truth that we gird ourselves with. The righteousness that Christ has given us will show itself by our obedience to the truth that we girded our waist with to be ready to fight Satan. We must not only speak what is true, but also live according to what is true. To do otherwise is to be an instrument of Satan and to have him as our fathers, as our father, as the Pharisees of old did. We must be people of uprightness and integrity of character. Our marriages must be marked by mutual love and confidence as we joyfully fulfill the roles that Christ has given us. We don't buy lies about sexual fulfillment that the world tries to sell us. Rather, rather we understand and practice sexual relationships that are sanctified by the bond of marriage. We work diligently because we work for Christ. Last week, uh, Elder Hollander said that Daniel lived an upright life to the point that when the enemies of Daniel were trying to make an accusation against him, the only accusation they could bring against him was, King! He's really faithful in his religion. 
That's the only accusation they could... This is dangerous, king, for he is more faithful to God than he is to you. Therefore, you should throw him in the den of lions. That must be us. More than ever, we must live righteous lives. And that doesn't mean perfect lives. But lives that demonstrate the truth of the scriptures, including daily repentance and humility. So truth and righteousness. Are you going to stand Satan? Are you going to stand his armies? Gird yourself with the truth of God. And put on the breastplate of righteousness that will protect your heart. Be ready to fight. Put on truth. Put on righteousness. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that you are a God who reveals yourself to us and reveals ourselves to us as well. We pray that we would faithfully follow you. We pray that your spirit would use what was said here this morning to cause us to grow closer to you. For us in Jesus' name, amen.